0: Welcome to the podcast where heavy industrial industries meet the venture capital ecosystem, interviewing both thought leading investors and pioneering founders to better understand the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for digital industrial innovation. Your host is Ty Finley, and this is the Heavy Hitters Podcast.
1: Tom Chi joins us today from San Francisco. Tom is the founding partner at At One Ventures, which backs early stage companies using disruptive deep tech to upend the unit economics of established industries while dramatically reducing their planetary footprint. Previous to founding At One, Tom was a founding member of Google X, where he led the teams that created self-driving cars, deep learning artificial intelligence, wearable augmented reality, and internet connected expansion. And prior to Google X, he played a significant role in established projects with global reach, including time at both Microsoft and Yahoo. He has also spent time in the developing world and via social entrepreneurship accelerators, has mentored thousands of entrepreneurs working on global development issues such as access to clean water, electricity, education, healthcare, and employment. And some notable digital industrial investments include Ipscore, Core, QB Technologies, Material Evolution, and Mighty Fly. Tom, it's great to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to this. Welcome to the Heavy Hitters.
0: Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on.
1: Right on. Well, we always start with some background, and I give my short snippet, but give us more of that color commentary on your journey and, and what's a pretty incredible story that led you to launching At One Ventures.
0: Yeah, so I started my career uh, doing a lot of stuff in advanced science and engineering research. So started my career as an astrophysical researcher at age 15, studying active galactic nuclei and star-forming regions in the infrared built a bunch of my own instruments to go do the observations, you know, kind of analyze the data, learn some things about how active galactic nuclei work and and got that stuff published and then had kind of an an entire arc open up in front of me in terms of really deep scientific and engineering research. So I built super high-speed control systems for HP labs, did sensor fusion uh, for medical imaging across ct and ultrasound and mri uh, mri in order to create like a much more actionable and better understanding of an area for surgical intervention Uh, worked on massively parallel computing systems worked on autonomous robots that can uh, crawl uh, roll and fly and most recently been working on one that swims in order to go replant coral reefs but long story short i had a early start of my career that was just deep in the weeds of doing uh, scientific work and and advanced engineering work. And then follow that up with a kind of an executive career arc that uh, included Microsoft, Yahoo. At Yahoo, I, I ran a multi-billion dollar business across 44 countries. Then moving on to Google where uh, I was one of the execs that helped to, to found the Google X team and work on things like the self-driving car, Google Glass, um, some of the things you mentioned in the intro. And then the third arc of my career is the starting of at One Ventures. The the reason for moving from two to three is that sometime during arc two, I was making you know that Silicon Valley exec money, and we got a vacation home out in Hawaii, pretty modestly priced actually, but you know out in the countryside in a really beautiful location. And uh, little did we know at the time, uh, it was a two minute walk from the front door to an astoundingly beautiful coral reef that. I spent a lot of my time when I was in Hawaii out on that reef really getting to know it. And if you spend a lot of time on a reef, you start to see it like an apartment complex or a neighborhood. You kind of know where particular organisms live, you know, who's friends with who. And, you know, even to this day, the most beautiful thing I've ever seen with my own eyes personally. And then I watched that reef in the year 2011 go from every color of the rainbow and life coming out of every pocket and pour to gray and brown and no life in less than 2 months because mm. i witnessed up close a mass bleaching and reef collapse event and i don't know you know how to describe it you know as a scientist or engineer i think the the term that comes to mind is that it, it left a hole in my heart i i wanted to go and understand what happened so that you know maybe we could address it and bring it back or maybe we could you know, prevent other communities from having that same thing happen and I spoke with about a dozen coral scientists and marine biologists and found out that not only had my reef died that year but about 10% of reefs globally had bleached that year and a number of them had experienced reef collapse after bleaching though not all of them and uh, it led to an immediate follow-up question which is well if 10% of all reefs could bleach in a year then how much time do we have left? And the consensus across about, you know, that those dozen folks was that we were on track to fully extinct coral from the planet within about 35 to 45 years. Now, of course, I had those conversations 10 years ago, so it means that the timeline on that is even tighter, uh, you know, more like 25 to 35 years before we extinct most of shallow water coral on the planet. And when we do that, we will instantly extinct 25% of all species that we know of in the ocean that live directly on the reefs, and about 10 to 15% more uh, percentage of the species in the oceans have their food chain or reproduction chain linked to the reefs, even if they don't live directly on the reefs, which means that we're on a very short trajectory to extinct about 25 to 40% of the ocean. Um, Hearing all that stuff, you know, even though I had kind of the best job in the world, right? You're an executive Google, so you have, you know, the benefits that, that that entails. But you also, I was getting to work on amazing things like a self-driving car. I was getting to work on amazing things like new approaches to artificial intelligence and so so on and so forth. And, you know, there was something about that arc of things that made me take two steps back. And I basically realized that, well, hey I mean we could invent a self-driving car this decade or we could invent it 100 years from now and life would kind of go on but if we didn't do what was required in the next 30 years for coral then that would just be the end of it that would be the end of its uh, of its trajectory on planet earth uh, I mean some of the coral scientists said well maybe coral will re-evolve but it's going to need like 10 to 20 million years I don't know uh, the odds I would put down on humanity lasting for 10 to 20 million more years I I hope we do but um, but I, I had that kind of realization that like I could apply a bunch of my deeply technical skills to things like a self-driving car but maybe they don't have as strong a time and time element in terms of when they need to be done in history uh, versus some of the things that we are now kind of confronting on the ecological side because of the industrial decisions we made before. So At One Ventures basically launched from all of that to go address, you know, the the ultimate disconnect, right? If you go and talk with people and just interview people about how they feel about nature, you're gonna go and, you know, if you grab a hundred random people, you're gonna have on average, very positive sentiment toward nature, you know, typically ranging from people feeling neutral to super loving nature like nature you know one of the most beautiful important things to them and even though we have a populace that overall has a very positive relationship personally you know spiritually to to nature then they cannot help but destroy nature in the way that we've designed the industrial economy in the process of living eating moving around being in buildings then all these people that love nature cannot help but but have the net effect of of creating really lasting damage and it it meant that well there's a simple approach to this which is let's go and create a firm that is focused on upgrading the industrial economy let's have the kind of industrial economy where people are able to get the goods and services that they need but you know the industrial des- economy is designed in such a way that the process of creating those goods and services have the absolute minimum negative impact to nature positive uh, that possible or in some cases have a positive impact to nature uh, in the case of some aspects of regenerative agriculture you can be making materials and restoring the soils the water tables a bunch of things in the process and what if we could make the ambitious goal that in totality? the goal that we're going after is for humanity to become a net positive to nature, that our presence on the planet, nature is healthier every year that we're around because we're around. Right now, we're not even a little bit close to that. So let's just be real straightforward about that. But if you're gonna go set a goal for a firm, then I think like, let's go for a goal that we actually want. And this is not to, to throw any other firms under the bus, but I, I, I find the forms of goal that are like let's keep things under 1.5 degrees C or under 350 parts per million which obviously we've blown past already Uh, I find those kinds of goal constructions not to be as motivating they're they're what I call thou shall not goals so thou shall not exceed 350 parts per million thou shall not exceed 1.5 degrees C those types of goals as goal constructions tend not to be deeply motivating they tend just to be a little scary and I think in order to go solve the climate issue then I'm not saying that being a little scared is not you know couldn't be helpful in some cases but I think the human system you know wants to have all of it it wants to have the ability to be creative and excited and motivated and engaged and a goal like helping humanity become a net positive to nature I feel is more squarely uh, in that possibility
1: well, definitely from the deeply technical skills meets what's a very personal story. So I appreciate you sharing, Tom. I, I think couldn't agree with you more around trying to help the industrial economy uh, find its next story arc, if we'll use that metaphor. So let, let's, um, at One Ventures, if you don't mind, just set the stage uh, for the discussion for our listeners. Tell us a little bit more on the high-level data points about the fund generally and the fund mandate, if we could, just to scope them in as I think about where you guys invest.
0: Yeah, so as mentioned in the origin story, the purpose of the firm is to help humanity become a net positive to nature. And for us, nature can be described as four subcomponents, air, water, soil, biodiversity. So basically those four components represent the physicality of nature. I mean, people can try to come up with some things beyond that. You know, it's like, well, you know, sometimes things like lightning is in a plasma state, but it's like, no, for the most part, the health of nature can be understood as those four physical things. And then within those four areas, then we stack rank the industries that are doing the most damage to nature. So for example, more than 90% of global water pollution comes from just four industries. It's agriculture, which is the largest by a lot, textile industry, paper and pulp, oil and gas. The oil and gas will say, no, it's not exactly us, but they actually do become a major water polluter because of quote unquote accidents. But hypothetically if there were no accidents in their industry they wouldn't be a major polluter but they have a lot of accidents Um, anyhow it means that if you could address how those four industries relate to water and specifically we do that by aiming at the unit economic core like basically creating new ways of doing business that are even better unit economics even more you know lucrative to the industry or more efficient for the industry Uh, but that come with radically better environmental economics that you know might, for example, use one ten thousandth of the water. Uh, to to give you a really concrete example, textile dyeing is an extremely water polluting industry. And in our case, we invested in a company that has invented a radically new uh, kind of textile dyeing machine that that has um, almost completely eliminates wastewater from textile dyeing. So, goes down from multiple metric tons per day to about an ounce of wastewater per week. And in addition has two and a half to three X better OPEX. So it means that if you are not doing textile dyeing in the way that this machine does it within a decade, we're probably putting you out of business. Like you're just not able to go compete with the the OPEX win of using this approach. And we call those three elements the triad. The triad is basically a disruptive deep tech which ushers in radically better unit economics paired with radically better environmental economics. And whenever we kind of find those three together uh, pointed at the industries that are doing most damage to nature, then that's kind of our, our you know, center of the plate bet. Gotcha.
1: And, and maybe just for some quick data points to put on record, remind us when the fund was launched, how many folks you've got, you know, stage, check size, just again, as folks think about reaching out to you, maybe as they, uh, they go on their journey
0: yeah the the all the stuff to go form it was done at the very end of 2019 first investment was at the beginning of 2020 Uh, we deployed out of 150 million fund one we have now raised over 350 million for our fund two Uh, 27 investments in fund one deployed over a little under three years Um, we going to spend about three years deploying, you know, uh, uh, getting into the initial positions of Fund two. We're about a year into it right now.
1: Gotcha. And seed series A, is that a fair representation of the stage you guys usually are focused on?
0: Yeah, we enter at seed and series A, uh, kind of our median check should be about three on 20 post in, in uh, fun two.
1: Okay good. Well, wanted to just get that uh, get that out there for folks listening, but um let's let's start off some of the questions a little high level when that we can work our way down to more specifics as we go. You know, generally speaking here it can get me in trouble sometimes, but climate tech has become a catch-all term for various forms of interpretation and applications across virtually any market at this point. Not, not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be confusing in some regards. So given At One's positions itself as a climate tech investor that backs the types of solutions that will make us, as you guys use the term, net positive society, can you define your outlook on what both climate and net positive investing means to you and your firm? Because just said simply, we're, we're trying with this show to help uh, really cut through the buzzwords around how are we going to help this industrial economy? And and so I'd l- love to hear your thoughts on how you define it, Tom.
0: So it's not inappropriate for a lot of things to fall under the climate umbrella because if you look at the industries that are contributing to humanity being a net negative to nature, it is most of them. So uh, there is something for basically every industry to to look at relative to its practical footprint, you know, from the emissions perspective, from the material use perspective, from the waste and pollution perspective, you know, from the water management perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I think like I I would not um, prevent anybody from using that phrase uh, relative to uh, the fact that that activity could make sense really in any industry. I think the question, of course, is to what degree are you actually doing that activity? Uh, You know, if you're doing it in a very light way and kind of over representing your results, then that's when you move into the greenwashing category. And if you're doing it in a really substantial way, then I think, yeah, there's plenty of good to be done and it is well um, described as climate tech or environmental investing. And I don't think anyone has a problem with it. I think you know we uh, in the industry, people are are a bit wary of greenwashing because there were so many folks that initially came to it from the other side where just like marketing and PR departments trying to score an easy win by you know, turning a headline in a particular way or spending five thousand dollars on a pilot in order to go say they're doing something really good for the world uh, when in practice, you know the actual Marketing spend to get it in channel was a million bucks. Well, you only spent five thousand dollars on the good thing, and then you spend a million bucks getting it in channel. Whoops. So, uh, I think because we had some early run-ins uh, with people making the kind of claims that matter to, to you know folks uh, that care about environment and climate, because we had some early run-ins like that, then people are a bit more sensitive. But we're at a really good time in history in that there are a lot more substantive pieces of work. And just the existence of them helps to drown out the, you know, comparatively fewer by proportion greenwashy activities.
1: Yeah, I I think I couldn't agree with you more because when I think about construction, right, APIS core icon, when we're printing homes, we're removing construction waste. I'm pretty sure that's one of the largest ESG contributors globally. If we're moving trains, planes, and automobiles around more efficiently, less CO2 emissions, or if we're getting our industrial complex uh, better localized, more efficient, uh, greenhouse gas complexes go with it. So uh, all for the words, right? Semantics in some regards, but I think your point of, are you really making an impact is, is something that people have to dig deeper on. So
0: lots of work ahead for us and, and maybe, um, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd be even more intense on it, which is every single business on the planet has an impact. It's just, are you spending any time understanding what that is and taking any responsibility for it? right? Like no matter what kind of, and you know, some of it is just that people are not that interested in understanding what their impact is, because they'll be like, look, I run a digital enterprise SaaS business, what could my impact be? And it's like, well, your thing uses electricity, requires, you know, servers, like requires, uh, which required physical material to go build, you know, there is, uh, whatever, you can can just trace through the mass energy balance of what changes in the world because your thing exists, and then work out what the impact is. So even the lightest businesses have an impact, and I think there's the question of, are you interested in what that is, and if you do find out what it is, are you doing anything active about like uh, putting it into the best spot that your organization could be, you know relative to that work? Well said.
1: Well, moving us forward here, um, I'm going to talk about some of those applications with this question. And, you know, the At One portfolio includes a range of impressive companies very aligned to this audience and and us both moving the industrial economy ahead, ranging from autonomous aircraft and tractors, uh, micro wind turbines, agricultural robots, mobile factories, and, uh, and battery recycling tech, just to name a few. And so given that you've come in at the early stage, say seed series A, and your stated focus is on backing, in quote, disruptive deep tech to up in the unit economics of established industries. In this current market environment, how do you look at and get comfortable investing in businesses that are often very capital intensive, though didn't always have to be, in order to prove out and scale over time? And, and with whatever you're looking at to find those, what are some of those characteristics you're looking for in these young young, young companies that are helping signal to you that they have the team and the tech to to succeed in developing these significant novel solutions that are attacking legacy industries i know that's a lot but would love to see how you're how you're looking at it and how you define it
0: yeah on the tech side of it then we start from a physics fundamentals approach which sounds like maybe more sophisticated than you need but it actually is extremely clarifying and i think sometimes you know people think about physics fundamentals and their mind goes to you know, Einstein in front of a board of equations. And sure, sometimes we we whip out the equations, but a lot of times you can get pretty far with a a simplification on the fundamental side. And the way I like to describe it to people is, um, you know, all of physics, despite all the equations can be described as, uh, it's just the discipline of understanding matter and energy moving through time and space. There's really only four things matter, energy, time, space. And if you're trying to evaluate a new tech compared to an incumbent tech, you just go head to head on those four things. Is there a big win in matter? Is there a big win in energy? Is there a big win in time? Is there a big win in space? If you don't have a big win on one or more of those four, you can already pass on the deal. It means they're using the same physics as the incumbent, and their likely unit economics and way of operating in the world is likely to converge to what the incumbents do. Th- this is not to say there can't be the occasional business model innovation that you know gets a good swing at things, but we, we kind of skew way more toward the foundational uh, physical and hardware innovation. And what's nice is that it's actually real easy to tell whether it exists because you will see that the new solution is able to get a better result using one-tenth the energy or the same result with one-fifth the matter, or in one-one-hundredth the time, or one-fiftieth the space. And when you have a physics win like that, then you have the possibility of a real unit economic win. So we basically take that physics win. Um, you know, If it's not there, we pass. If it is there, then we dive a step deeper into how does the physics win drive the unit economic win? Now, if the thing uses way less matter, then you save on feed stack costs. Uh, feedstock costs. If it uses way less energy, you're typically saving on OPEX. If you're using way less time, then you're getting a lot more throughput and a lower payback time for any CAPEX that's required to go generate the physical thing. And if it saves a lot on space, then kind of depends on whether it's a space-constrained industry or not. If it is space-constrained, then a lot of times there's just direct metrics for space savings to economics. And if there isn't, then maybe then that particular physics win doesn't translate to that much. Anyway, long story short, you take the physics win, you translate it into a unit economic win, and to get to the, the crux of the question that you asked, well, how do we build the confidence to actually get behind one of these bets? Well, beyond their fundamentals and their unit economics working out, then we actually take what we would have had at that point, and we go to the actual customer, and we just ask them, you know, uh, how interested they are in buying it. So, we're not pitching them. We're not the entrepreneur. We don't need to make the sale but at the point that you know the physics change then you know what the cost is going to be for a producer to go adopt a different physical way of doing that production and once you calculate the unit economics you know the benefit to them of adopting that so we just kind of present the the physical and the unit economic change the cost and the benefit in this kind of flat way to them and then there's three possible responses the best response is called the wipe, and the wipe basically sounds like, oh my gosh, if I could get those unit economics, I need to clear out my factory floor because every day that mm-hmm. I'm running these old machines, I'm, I'm setting money on fire. And you can see why we're excited to invest in that. Second best is the dominant replacement. And that basically sounds like, oh, you know, you got something really compelling here. Tell you what, every single year I upgrade or age out 10 to 15% of my equipment. And from now on, you guys are the only, you know, only thing I'm purchasing for those upgrades. And we'll still invest in that. And then the third one is called the discretionary. And that basically sounds like, hey, every year I upgrade to 10, uh, 10 to 15% of my equipment, and you guys are a good choice out of four good choices. We're typically passing on the deal at that point. So while most of, of you know, venture is kind of fine to be in a bunch of discretionaries, oh, I have, I back this enterprise SaaS company that does procurement. That's like the 50th enterprise SaaS company that does procurement. Like, why why is anyone going to pick yours versus another, right? Like, in the deals that we do, it's all physical things, and we don't want to be in it unless it's a, a wipe or a dominant replacement kind of market condition. Now, the way that this loops back to your initial question is if you hold the bar this high for everything up until this point, then there's a lot of ways to go finance the company that would include raising way fewer equity dollars than one would expect, because basically the characteristic of if something can get through all those gates, then it tends to be supply limited as soon as you actually make it available to the market, because markets not dumb. Like if there's something that's going to reduce the opex or you know uh, of their industry by a factor of two or three, or improve their margins and profitability by a factor of two or three, then a lot of people are going to want it pretty quickly. And to the extent that you can start to bring something to market that's intrinsically supply limited, then you get into this really fortunate situation where addressing supply limits is only a debt level risk. It basically includes facility bring up, spending money on cogs and in inventory, you know, setting up you know, productive capital equipment for the production process. That is all debt level risk. Debt lenders basically lend against those sorts of activities because if you know the thing that you're making, is going to sell, then that's only a debt level of risk to go up those lines. But if you can get to a really interesting realization, because you're because being supply limited, people are going to buy every single bit that you make. So it means you can get to a really interesting kind of uh, revenue velocity curve. If you can if you can use that to get to a really compelling exit, well, you're basically getting to an exit at debt level risk with an equity level return. And that's effectively what we that what we do in our system um, over and over. We kind of look for the unit economic wins that are going to kind of wipe the deck of an entire industry. And then we de-risk them through late stage engineering and manufacturing so we can get into that moment of being supply limited. And then from there, there's actually lots of ways to finance the company.
1: Sure. I love, I love the definition of if you're supply limited, the capital won't be the problem there. Um, so I'm, I'm following you on that one. And maybe just round us out on this and the frameworks so far. When it comes to the team, just out of curiosity, you know, there's some on the camp of they need deep, deep domain experience, exactly the market they're targeting or highly technical founders that will figure out the market or a blend of both. Do you have an archetype that you found more advantageous or not, Tom?
0: We are actually more focused on the numbers I've sh- I've mentioned so far the. Um, there is a lot that is said about the the team that you're backing and for us we always think about the team as uh, absolutely a team can have terrible dynamics and you can go pass on a team for those reasons. But like we we typically don't do the flip side where a number of folks will do bets that are primarily team bets, we we don't really do that. Like if mm-hmm. you had a great team, but you didn't have the tech that had the winning unit economics, then I don't know. I mean, maybe that's fine for consumer play, but it's not fine for our playbook where you need to actually have the better unit economics to succeed in displacing the industry in the long run. So that is kind of more important to us than any of the classic rule of thumb around, you know, what to evaluate in founders and team dynamics, that kind of thing. And then whatever we get, because we we sometimes end up with a team, for example, that is very engineering in its core or academic in its core, uh, but they are the ones that figure out how to get these winning unit economics. Well, if that's the case, then we will help to staff the commercial side of the business. Um, or if we get the opposite imprint, where it's like, oh no, this person got a great salesperson, they got a great whatever, then we will go. We might fill out the manufacturing side of the business. So we really think about this as can we be the organization that from the recruiting and support side is can be highly complementary to whatever team we're taking on because a lot of times when we first invest the team is like between two to ten people like clearly there's a lot of team build out that needs to happen post that point so don't obsess over you know, all these checklists over what this founder needs to have. It's like, you know, no. like if it's workable, then let's start with what you have and let's see how amenable everybody is to kind of building out the rest of the stack.
1: Yep, well, stays very true to how you answer the questions. And, and maybe, Tom, last part of this, we'll always wrap up with a little quick hitter section, a little Q&A, so if you're ready, we'll jump in. What is the number one thing you look for when you're evaluating a founder within this ecosystem? And I know we kind of talked on this a little bit, but I am curious to hear uh, your outlook.
0: Yeah, I like the I like directness and transparency of where a thing is because it just makes it easier to work together and get things done effectively. I also like kind of like an avocado mind, which is like not too not too hard, not too soft. If a thing is too mushy, then the like nothing sticks or everybody's advice is like a big mash on top of it and it doesn't feel coherent. But if things are too hard, then even when really helpful things are being put forward then the entrepreneur is not picking any of it up and you know they might as well be executing in a vacuum like sometimes you're still you still luck out and they just happen to have picked exactly the right plan but most of the time that's not the case like people mostly are stronger when they're able to take an input at key points uh, where there there might be multiple options or or consequential you know pathways that are being taken so that kind of in-between spot like firm enough to get a plan done once it's been decided on but but smushy enough to be able to absorb a bunch of input in the process of creating plans
1: right avocado mindset I haven't heard that one before i like it um one resource uh, could be a book podcast blog whatever you recommend to our audience to to follow in this broader
0: ecosystem i really like the podcast for the wild by ayana Young and team. I mean, the thing I like about it is that it really takes the the relationship between humanity and nature. It really looks at it from a high integrity point of view. And it touches. You know, all the way to the philosophical, all the way down to, you know, indigenous practice, you know, all the way through to the, the different foundational thoughts of how business is intersecting with environment or not. Uh, it is less of a business businessy podcast, but I think it it goes and challenges the way that we think about our relationship to nature at a depth that I think is appropriate for the for the the task. Right on. Well, who's
1: one person who should should be on the podcast here to help us push forward this industrial economy we're both working toward?
0: I don't know. Jigger Shaw, if you have you already had him on. No, I have not. Yeah. It'd be a great one.
1: Yeah. Right on.
0: Uh, and then finally, uh,
1: best way for folks to reach out to you after the show?
0: Uh, you can just go to tomchi.com, T-O-M-C-H-I.com, or you can just um, yeah, reach out to me um, from atoneventures.com.
1: Awesome. Well, Tom, I, to say the least around the industrial economy and all the things we talked about today to try to help push it forward. we got a lot of work cut out for us and we're trying to recruit as many folks as we can to to do it uh, in your way, a very conscious and and actually wanting to understand the impact they're having. So look forward to working with you on it and appreciate you jumping on. Yeah,
0: no problem at all. Great chatting today.